Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Ben Blakey. It's Thursday, March 10th, 2022. We could not live without light. Imagine trying to live in a world of complete darkness. It just would not work. We need light. Light is part of what makes civilization go. And that's why as we read the creation account, the first thing God says is, let there be light. Light is essential for life, even in a physical sense. But today we want to consider how light is also essential spiritually. We cannot live spiritually without light. And we want to see this in our New Testament reading, John 8, 1 through 30. And we want to think about light in two different ways. First, we want to consider the light of God's word. Because we come to a passage that's very interesting today um, that we need to think about. We need to think about our Bibles and why we should have confidence in them. Think of the famous verse, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Why should we trust God's word? Especially when you probably look in your Bible and over uh, the section that we're reading today, really the beginning of John 8 and really starting with the last verse of John 7, uh, my Bible, my copy of the English Standard Version says, in brackets over uh, verse 53 of chapter 7 through verse 11 of chapter 8. It says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And maybe your Bible says something similar there, and it even puts that passage in double brackets. What's going on? Is this the word of God or not? And maybe that gets us asking questions about how this this Bible that I have in my hand, this English Bible that we're reading through this year, how do I know that this is actually the word of God? Well, that's a good question. And as we look at a passage like this, it really shouldn't make us doubt the Bibles that we hold in our hands. It should actually increase our confidence. And so we don't do this often, but it's good to review just a little bit of how did we get our Bibles? The Bible that you are holding in your hand, or maybe it's the translation you're reading on your phone, or you're looking at the website where we copy and paste from the Bible into the website. Uh, How can you know that is the word of God? Well, I want to walk through just the six steps of how we get to our English Bible. And as we do that, I think you'll actually increase in your confidence of God's word. And obviously we only have a few minutes to do this today. If you're looking for a deeper study, my old pastor, Pastor Mike Fabares, he did a great in-depth study on how we got our Bibles. And he'll go way more in depth on all of this. I'll put the link to that study in the show notes if you're interested in looking at it. But really there's six steps really from God to the English Bible that you are holding in your hand. And they are revelation, inspiration, canonicity, transmission, textual criticism, and translation. Let's just briefly work through each one of those, and you'll find that that might have sounded pretty uh, pretty confusing, but it's actually pretty simple, and we can be pretty confident in it. The first step is revelation, right? God has to reveal himself to us, and, and he has done that in general ways. The creation declares the glory of God, but he has also done it through special revelation, and one of the main examples we have of that is 
Scripture. So how did God reveal himself? Well, he's done that through then the second step, inspiration. And two main passages that we think about here that are pretty well known, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Or 2 Peter, you know, it's all uh, produced not by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, different humans were used to write the Bible, and their writing reflects their own personality and even their vocabulary, but God is working through it to get down to the very exact words that he wanted. Uh, so what we have it really in the original copies of, uh, of the different books of the Bible were the exact words that God wanted. And this was proven with miraculous signs. This was proven with predictive prophecy. And even just the truth of Scripture is self-authenticating. We can know this is the Word of God. The next process is canonicity. And when we speak of the canon of Scripture, we're talking about, no, these are the books that are legit in the Bible, are the Word of God. And you, you hear people talk maybe about other Gospels. Well, why aren't those in the Bible? And really, it's it's pretty simple. The idea is not that the church determined uh, the canon. Um, no, God determined which books were Scripture and which weren't. And, and as humans, we merely discovered what God had already intended. And it's pretty straightforward with the Old Testament. The Old Testament was established, and Jesus comes along and puts a pretty clear stamp of approval on it. And then with the New Testament, the books are generally connected to apostles. Jesus even foretold that, that they would be able to remember things and guided by the Holy Spirit. These books were immediately recognized. They're doctrinally consistent. So when people try to say, oh, this gospel over here, it got kicked out at some council by some Roman emperor, that's just it's just not true. Uh, those books were never accepted by Christians as the word of God. And God determined that, not some council. Well, how do we go then and get uh, the Bible everywhere? Well, then the next step is transmission, right? It was copied. The Bible was copied again and again and again and again. Uh, and that's where we have thousands of copies of manuscripts of the Bible. And even over time, we get more manuscripts. We find older manuscripts. Our knowledge just gets better and better. And actually, the amount of manuscripts we have of the Bible dwarfs the amount of manuscripts we have for any other ancient literature. And there's even amazing stories of how more manuscripts are found, uh, and it should increase our confidence. And guess what? These manuscripts, they say the same thing, about 99.9% the same thing. There are little variants here and there, as you would imagine, as it's written down time and time again. At some point, some scribe is going to get sleepy or they're going to accidentally skip a line or they're going to mess up a letter or things like that. But that's because, but that's why we have so many copies. We can put them together and figure out what went wrong. It wasn't just some game of telephone because in telephone, you don't write everything down. With this transmission, everything is written down. So then how do we figure out what the originals actually said, and that brings us to the process of textual criticism. Now, 
to be clear, you might hear that and say, isn't that sketchy? Well, there's something known as higher criticism that is basically a bunch of flaming hot garbage. It's basically liberal scholars trying to deny the inspiration of God's word and view this not as the word of God, but the result of human minds. And that we reject. That That is not true. But there is what we call lower criticism. And that's this, okay, let's get all the manuscripts together and let's figure out, you know, why, when there's differences, which one is correct. And there's lots of ways that uh, really smart people can get together and do this as they compare the things, they compare the spellings. Sometimes you can clearly see, oh yeah, this was the error there. Sometimes it seems like uh, somebody put in a footnote as they were copying, but then over time that footnote kind of got put into the text and we can trace those things and be pretty confident of what the original says. And another key is all these tiny variations that we find, none of them affect our doctrine. None of them affect the things that we believe about God, about the gospel. Um, And so that brings us to our current passage, and that's where it is true. The oldest manuscripts do not include this passage. And there's only one other longer passage like this in the Bible, and that's Mark 16. And that's where, when we look at this, we should be like, Well, how do I know? Well, basically, we should have confidence that nobody's able to creep something into the Bible. If things were added to the the text of Scripture over time, guess what? We've been able to figure it out. And again, even these examples like John 8, it's not saying anything different than the rest of the Bible says. And that's why I believe that what we read here at the beginning of John 8, it actually happened. I don't think it was originally part of John's gospel, because what it shows us about Jesus and the Pharisees is consistent with everything else we see about Jesus and the Pharisees. So I think it's something that really happened. But at the end of the day, we actually get our confidence increased in our English Bible. And then that last step is translation. Once they've put together the Hebrew and the Greek, as they've studied all the thousands of manuscripts to say, this is Uh, what we believe the Bible actually said, well, then it gets translated from Hebrew and from Greek into English. And there's various translations. They all have their own strengths and weaknesses, but that is how what we have in our Bibles today works. And it's amazing. You can go look at translations of the Dead Sea Scrolls and you can open up your English Bibles and guess what? They say the same thing. Uh, You can be looking at uh, a translation of Isaiah from before (coughs) the time of Jesus Christ. And guess what? It says the same thing that your Bible says. So the more you study this, the more confident you should be in the Bible. And so when you see notes like this, don't get thrown off. I actually understand that there's a reason, and this is a good thing. We we know what is God's word, and we can have a great confidence in that, and we can trust in this light unto our feet, this lamp that we have. God's word is sure, and things like this shouldn't make you question that. The more you dig in, the more you'll find, man, there's every reason to believe in the word of God. This is unlike any other book. It's the only book that truly brings revival. That's why we read it. That's why we talk about it every single day. So that might be a little more academic than normal, but it's good from time to time that we just remind us, how did we get this Bible that we read through every day? And actually, we can be so confident. We're not guessing as to, well, I don't know what God really said. We know what God has said. He has spoken clearly, and praise God, we have accurate translations of it in our own language. Now, we talked about light in a couple ways. The second way we want to think about life, light, and because of time, we need to do this quickly, is 
the light that is essential for spiritual life. And just a couple things to note here. Verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what does that mean to walk in darkness? Well, we see a little later. As he says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And then they're saying, what what does he mean? Is he going to kill himself? And he says, you are from below in verse 23. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Right? You need to believe in Jesus or you will die in your sins. And really, that's the contrast there. The light is the truth about Jesus Christ and the darkness is our sins. And we need to see that when we believe in Jesus, that does more than just change us mentally. It changes us morally. Believing in Jesus Christ, the light of the world, Obviously, we get forgiven and our eternal destiny is changed, but also, as we're going to see even in the next reading, we're set free from sin. And that's why Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. You can't believe in me truly and then continue to walk in the darkness of your sin. Jesus is so bright that he transforms our lives. Now, I think there's actually a lot of confusion about that, that people think, well, I can know Jesus and I can walk in my sin. Well, Jesus says right here, that's impossible because I am the light of the world. And if you truly believe in me, if you truly follow me, I'm going to light up your life in ways where you will not be able to be the same person that you were. So that's an important element of just the light that we need to live, not only physically, but spiritually. So we see that today in just the light of God's word and the confidence that we can have in it, but also the light of Jesus Christ and how that overcomes the darkness of our sin. As we briefly look at our Old Testament reading today from the book of Warriors, or, you know, what most people call Numbers, 15 through 17, we see a couple things. One thing that I found interesting in chapter 15 was uh, the commands to sacrifice for unintentional sins. And even it, it refers to some of these as a mistake in verse 28. And that's where I do think sometimes we only think of sin as something I intentionally decide to do, where God may consider sin to be a little broader in that and include things you might prefer to refer to as mistakes. And yes, they might be unintentional sins, but they do need to be confessed. They do need to be forsaken. And there does need to be a sacrifice. And we know that sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And that's really the beauty of the the grace-based nature of uh, Christianity, according to the Bible. It gives us a freedom to acknowledge sin. We don't need to try to justify ourselves and make excuses. Well, that was just a mistake. It wasn't sin. No, I can admit that, yes, it was a mistake, but it was also sin. But there is forgiveness from that. So I don't need to try to defend myself. I can confess my sin, forsake it, and experience the freedom of forgiveness. And then in chapters 16 and 17, really, you see that there's a challenge towards Moses's leadership. But because Moses was appointed by God, it's really a challenge towards God. And God speaks pretty clearly by opening up the the earth to swallow these people and their stuff and their families. Uh, It's a pretty intense passage, but that's what's going on here. They're challenging Moses, but by challenging Moses, they're challenging God because Moses had been appointed by God and God defends Moses and even defends Aaron and their roles 
in chapters 16 and 17. So let's give thanks for the light today, the light of God's word that we can hold in our hands, even in our own language, and know this is what God has said. I know it. And the light of Jesus Christ that sets us free from sin and helps us to walk in a new direction. That's why we dig into it every day here on Revival from the Bible. So thanks for digging into God's Word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out RevivalFromTheBible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to CompassBible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.